Take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. As you open your Bible this morning, you'll notice that um, that there are 43 verses in this psalm. You know, I don't get to the pulpit much, and I won't take full advantage of it when I'm here. So I picked a psalm that has 43 verses. You'll be excited to know this morning that we're going to look at all those verses. We're going to illustrate and apply every one of them. And I hope you're prepared to be here for a very long time. Not really. Psalm 107. It's a third psalm in a series of psalms that traces God's redeeming activity in the lives of his people. Psalm 105 does that. Psalm 106 does that. And Psalm 107, in a very significant way, concludes that. It's an anthem of praise to the determined, unchanging love of God that makes us and keeps us as his people. Because of the length of the psalm this morning, we'll look at the first three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll pick up the last verse, verse 43, and we'll kind of hopscotch through the middle of the section. So if you have your copies of God's Word open, let's begin in verse 1, reading through verse 3, and then skipping to verse 43. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm assuming that we paid our electric bill, and yes, indeed we did. One never knows in tough times. (laughs) We've got a false brother in the sound booth this morning. Keep your eyes uh, on the sound booth. I've uh, said, and I'm sure you have too, that God's love is unconditional. Um, I know that you've heard it. Many of you may have said it. I most likely have. It's well-intentioned, but it's not the whole truth about the love of God. It falls short to say that God loves us unconditionally. If by that we mean kind of a bland, vanilla passivity, a passive resignation, a love that is safe and approving irregardless. But God's love is better than unconditional. This psalm says so. It says so throughout the scripture. God's love is better than unconditional because it was woven into most of the lines that we sang this morning in worship. God's love is certainly better than unconditional because Psalm 107 calls it not unconditional, it calls it steadfast. God's love is steadfast. Six times in the psalm, in the various refrains, we're reminded that God loves us relentlessly, that he is persistent, that he is doggedly determined, that he is indefatigable, that he is unfailing. In fact, that's what the NIV translates uh, this word as, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, if you have an NIV, it will talk about God's unfailing love. It's the translation of a rich two-syllable Hebrew word, hesed. And packed into those two little syllables is a world of redemptive activity. Packed into those two syllables is a world of God's goodness in your own life. It's squeezed in there. It's a covenantal term that binds God's love to us as his people. It's persevering, transforming, redeeming, and purposeful in all that he intends to do for us. It is, in a word, unfailing. I think it has in it the idea, if you saw the movie, We Were Soldiers, based on the true life story of Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore in 1965 in a 
horrid firefight in the Ladrang Valley in Vietnam. Steadfast love is woven into the idea in which Mel Gibson standing before in a very bad southern accent. you got to be from the south to get the southern accent right. Standing before these troops at their graduation ceremony as they're preparing to go to Vietnam. Standing before them, he says that we're about to enter the valley of the shadow of death. And I will be first on the field of combat. And I will be last off the field of combat. And I guarantee you that I will bring every one of you men home. I guarantee it. See, that's the idea of steadfast love. It's rugged. It's fibrous. It has sinew. It has tenacity in it. It has steel in its backbone. It's the kind of love that inspired George Matheson when his sight had failed him, when the girl of his dreams had failed him. It's what inspired the hymnist George Matheson to write, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Surely it's the idea that captured Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 when he begins to to end that great chapter, Romans 8, and he begins to think about the love of God. And he says not only did it secure us from condemnation in Christ in verse 1, but by the end of the chapter, he says, I am fully persuaded that there's nothing in this life, neither height nor depth, nor death, nor life, nor any created thing that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is steadfast love. It's a love that will not give up, that will not yield. And Psalm 107 traces that kind of love, God's kind of steadfast, tenacious, persistent love through four pictures, four poetic pictures in this psalm. Beginning in verse 4, we find ourselves lost and his love brings us home. Notice verse 4 in the psalm. It says that some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. They were hungry and thirsty in verse 5. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This first segment of the psalm describes the whole idea of being lost, of people who've lost their way. We're lost because of the maze of sin. We're lost because we're, we're dead in trespasses and sins and he must bring us to life. We're lost because the scripture says we're blind. We're lost because our understanding is darkened. And having come to faith in Christ, we still find ourselves sometimes wandering in a corn maze, if you will, keeping in time with this season, find ourselves wandering in a corn maze because we've lost our way in life. And yet steadfast love comes and brings us home. When we cry out to the Lord, when we call upon his name, he comes to us and he finds us. This whole picture of lost is a graphic picture of emptiness. It's the idea of being lost physically, of being lost spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. We've inherited a condition that tends to make us lost until we're found. The idea that inspired John Newton to write in Amazing Grace, I was lost, but now I'm found. When we don't know where to turn, when we've lost our way, 
when we're confused and bewildered. He comes to us in love and becomes our wisdom and our light and our illumination. And he leads us back on the right path. Opening section here describes a season of life that we've all experienced. There's a time in your life, there's a time in my life when I was lost and he found me. I must tell you candidly, there have been times in my life since I've been a professing Christian that I've lost my way. That I've become lost again. Oh, not fully finally lost. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. We sang this morning in Christ alone that that no one or nothing will be able to pluck us out of his hand. And we believe that. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe that I am his by grace and grace alone, that I am forever his. But candidly, folks, there are seasons in your life when the when the the diagnosis is grim and the bottom is falling out that you feel lost all over again. It describes the emptiness in your soul. And yet God doesn't give up. He doesn't accept the circumstances because he stands behind the circumstances. And he comes to us in steadfast love and he brings us home. It describes our ongoing deep need of God's redeeming steadfast love that would come and rescue us. In a recent week or so, we celebrated the recovery, the rescue of 33 Chilean miners. They were entombed in what was certain certain death, but... There were rescuers that would not give up. Some of you remember 23 years ago, another scene of rescue when Jessica McClure in Midland, Texas, fell into an abandoned well. She was, I think, a two or three year old girl and she was suspended between uh, between um, this well, between life and death for 58 hours and rescuers would not give up. And there was a mother who stayed by the abandoned well, pleading and urging them on to rescue her daughter. And I well remember because we had a daughter that was one year old. And I vicariously entered into the experience of having had a child whom I loved deeply. And imagining that child lost beyond reach and having been rescued. If you get the emotion of that this morning, if you get the emotion of having been near death and brought back to life, of having been in darkness, and now you're standing in the light, you get the idea of what the psalmist is calling us to do. He's calling us to worship God for his steadfast love that will not let us go. We're compelled to worship Notice in Psalm 107 in verse uh, 6 and 7 that to be loved by God then is to be seen by Him. It's to be heard by Him. It's to be delivered and led by Him. Our son played sports. He played basketball. He played baseball. He played football. And certainly during his uh, high school years and, and even earlier, but I'll just use the high school years, when he was playing football, number 40. I still miss the Friday nights. Um I had the little video camera up there, and I had it zeroed in on number 40. I followed him all around the, the field. You know what it is. You have children. You have grandchildren. When they're participating in sports, they've got the piano recital. They're in the school play. They're in whatever. In, your eye is fixed on them. That's the idea of steadfast love. It means that his eye is fixed on us because he's made us as people, and he will keep us as his people. That kind of love compels us to worship. Look at verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his 
wondrous works to the children of men. I'd like to suggest this morning, though, that it doesn't end at worship. It also leads to witness. It leads to us sharing with other people the love that would not let us go. It leads us to those that that seemingly are losing their way, family, friends, whomever that it may be, co-workers, people that we love. When they're losing their way, this is an encouragement to us that though they may be beyond our reach, they're never beyond his reach. And so we warn and we plead and we intercede and we pray and we hope and we encourage because we believe that once they're his, they will never not be his, that love will reach out and bring them home. Psalmist gives us another picture in the next stanza. He says that when we rebel against God's word, that he corrects us in our rebellion. He doesn't leave us in our rebellion. He doesn't leave us in our disobedience, but he comes to us. He comes to us in correcting love. Look at verse 10. The psalmist continues. He said, some set in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And here's the reason, verse 11, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Notice what the Lord did in verse 12. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help until in verse 13, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. In other words, we uh, sometimes think that we know better than the word of God. Sometimes we think that we know better than the will of God. We find we're tempted to believe anyway, and it's as old as the garden. We're tempted to believe that we're wiser, that, that we can see further, that we simply know more. And we find God's word restrictive to our freedom. We find it too narrow for our desires. And so we push against it. We bump up against it. And God doesn't leave us there. He corrects us and he draws us back. He pulls us back, if you will. You you could imagine if God's love really was this bland, vanilla, benign, passive, resignation, caserah, serah, then you and I would be in real trouble in the face of that kind of love. Because we're a people, as we sing in the hymn, we're a people who are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. Verse 12 says that God won't leave us there. In fact, he'll bow down our hearts with hard labor and we will find none to comfort or help. He promises no blessing in rebellion, but he promises blessing when we're obedient. And so he will bring us back to the place of obedience so that we might know the joy of his blessing and the satisfaction of his smile upon our lives. Because he loves us, he will not let us run then to utter ruin. And God's love means that he will correct us to the point of repentance, that he might restore us. And we may incur his displeasure. We may suffer the loss of usefulness for a season. We may experience hard circumstantial consequences. We may lose the, the joy of our salvation and the sense of assurance. But God's loving end is always to bring us back to favor, to bring us to repentance and restoration. We're in the middle of a... Football season, one of my probably my favorite time of the year, and um, my favorite part of a Saturday afternoon often is right around two thirty on CBS because it's the SEC game of the week. It was a doozy yesterday, though I didn't get to see it. 
Well, there's a gentleman in our grace group by the name of Larry Higginbotham. Larry played uh, baseball at Ole Miss, and, and Larry is Mr. Sports Information in our grace group. And, and he had a friend that, uh, that played football for Alabama when Bear Bryant ruled the Crimson Tide. And they would have about 100 people that would come out because they wanted to play for the legendary coach Bear Bryant, six national titles, and so on and so on. But they found that many of them found Bear's practices too tough. And the field in which they practiced was bounded by by a high fence and with a locked gate. And so when these guys had had enough in the practice, they would run for the fences and begin to scale them. And team managers would look at Coach Bryant and he would shake his head, meaning let him go. Or he would point at one and do like this. And he meant get him off the fence and bring him back. I want him. See, God's love is like that when we run for the fences, when we try to live outside the fences of his will, when we try to rebel against the boundaries of his word, he pulls us back. When we drift toward the fences in our marriage, when we drift toward the fences in our business practices because of the pressure for profits, when we drift toward the fences with peer acceptance in high school or junior high or college or those early work years, because we want to be approved, we want to be liked, we, we want to be in, and we find ourselves drifting and accommodating compromise in our lives for some end that we imagine is better than what God would provide for us. God won't let us drift long. He will bring us back. When I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1974, and uh, we took a senior trip to, uh, to Daytona Beach. And I had never been in the Atlantic much. I'd been on the Gulf side. I didn't understand about the currents in the Atlantic. And I was on this big oversized float one afternoon uh, in a state of near Nirvana. Graduation was impending, and I thought I had the world by the kite string. And so I'm just drifting along. I didn't realize, being a Tennessee boy, that the currents in the ocean would, would take you away. I realized it when I saw next exit Cuba, however that I had drifted a long way from the coast of Florida. Well, I heard uh, Daytona Beach then had lifeguards, and I hear the shrill of a lifeguard whistle, and, and I kind of raise up, and I look over my shoulder, and it's a lifeguard with a red flag pointing that red flag and waving me back in. Well, I started leisurely splashing, heading back towards shore. A few minutes I hear the whistle. I've drifted even further, and now the lifeguard's waving that red flag and pointing and, and reeling me back in. It took me a long time to get back to shore. In fact, I was worn out. Somebody had to come out and help me paddle that raft back in. And I'm glad somebody in that senior class cared enough to come out and get me. I'll tell you this. If we're left to our own devices and care how long you've walked with the Lord, there's a pattern of drift that will overtake you. It's like house maintenance. It's going to get our house painted in a friend of mine was going to do it and he showed me the some areas of the house outside that had not been taken care of in 20 years but now it's time to pay the bill see nothing is ever improved by neglect nothing not a marriage not a business not your body not your soul and god will not let us drift into those patterns he will bring us back there is much within us that would find pleasing the allure of Vanity Fair, the, the term for culture in Bunyan's term. And we'll drift, but God will bring us back out of our darkness. He'll bring us back out of our lust. 
He'll bring us back out of the shadow of business death and the bondage of peer acceptance that results in great compromise. And when that happens, then we can, as verse 15 tells us, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. The psalmist moves to another picture in verse 17. He says, when we're fools and think we know better, God sends his love to heal us from our folly. Verse 17 says, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Foolishness in scripture is not an IQ problem. It's not a matter of uh, being academically uh, short. Um, you know, a friend of mine said he took algebra twice. He took one both times. Um, I'm not a great math student. I, I know the alphabet and I know numbers, but when you put them together, something happens. It seems perverse. There is something perverse about that, isn't it? Mixing those two things together. Foolishness in the scripture is not about intellectual inabilities. It's about moral density. It's about stubbornness in our lives. It's about the, the folly that we would pursue and invest ourselves. And notice in verse 17 and 18, it leads to self-inflicted wounds. Have you ever shot yourself in the foot, so to speak, spiritually because of Choices and decisions that you made. And even then, God will not leave us there. God will come to us. Heather Seeley's here this morning and her beloved husband, Bill. God didn't leave Bill in folly. But he came to him one day in Virginia. Steadfast love overtook Bill Seeley at the corner of Braddock and Ox in Virginia. And years of folly dissolved and melted into repentance. Because the love that would not let Bill go came to him. Bill was seated in a car looking in a rearview mirror and he saw hollowed out blackened eyes made so because of a fool's folly. And God came to him and brought him to himself. How many times would that happen in our lives? How many times would that happen in our sons and daughters lives that God would not leave us and let us alone. Have you ever seen the show Intervention on A&E? Have you ever seen people gathered around someone who's made foolish because of an addiction to food or alcohol or drugs or hoarding or some other thing that's undoing them, but they cannot let it go because their foolishness will not let them go, but there's somebody that loved them enough. Listen, there's someone that loves you enough that he will come to you in the midst of your folly and he will bring you to the end of yourself and he will bring you to repentance and a place of humility so that instead of foolishness, you will lift your voice in verse 21 and give thanks to the Lord for a steadfast love. Very quickly, the psalmist concludes in verse 23 and following by saying that when we are broken and damaged by life in a fallen world, God makes us whole again. It gives us a great picture of life. It's a, a sea picture, if you will. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
Verse 26, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. It's a picture of life here. Smooth seas, storms, unexpected events and so on to where we're overwhelmed and feel as if we're sinking and going under. It's a picture of life. Life in a fallen world has a way of breaking us down. And yet in our brokenness, God comes to us and he heals us and he restores us. And he puts our feet back on the solid ground of truth and righteousness. You notice verse 25, God's Lord over the storms that you and I are in this morning. He's Lord over them. It's every storm is a summons to trust and humility. Every storm eventually will take you to your wit's end. The sooner we come to our wit's end, the sooner we have a sense of safety and security in the storm. When we realize, like the child song, he's got the whole world in his hand. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. As soon as I feel that and know that, then I have a sense that in the midst of the storm, I know one who rules the storm and who speaks peace to the winds and the waves. The storm leads us to our wit's end so that we might turn to the Lord. That we might cry out to Him and call upon the Lord in our distress. There's a pattern in this psalm. We've gone through it rather hurriedly this morning. But but I don't know if you've caught the pattern of this or not. But seasons of being lost lead to distress, lead to calling upon the Lord, lead to God's rescue, lead to worship and telling others. Seasons of rebellion lead to... God's coming and intervening in our rebellion until we call upon him and we repent and he restores us in steadfast love. Seasons of foolishness lead to our coming to the end of our folly and crying out to the Lord and God sending his word and healing us from our folly and leading us to worship and telling others about the steadfast love of the Lord. And all those broken world incidents in our lives We cry out to the Lord and he comes and rescues us yet again. And it leads to worship and telling others of the deeds of the Lord. Folks, I'm glad God's love is better than unconditional. I'm glad that it's relentless, that it never wavers, that it's purposeful, that it's redeeming, that it's tough and tenacious and doggedly determined to make me his son and you his children. Notice in verse 43 how the psalm concludes. Whoever's wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, think through it. Meditate upon it. Ponder it. Reflect upon it. Take the psalm and then work it through your life's history as well. Think about how the Lord came to you in your lostness. He didn't allow you to continue, but he came to you and he brought you home. Think about how the Lord did not leave you in periods of rebellion. But he brought you back to himself. Think about how the Lord did not let you pursue your folly to your ultimate ruin. But he sent his word and instructed you. Think about how your life would be broken apart this morning. Had God not come to you and 
spoke in peace to the storms of your life and brought you safely back home to himself. You can't help notice then in the psalm that we're not the hero of this story. God is. In fact, God is the hero of every story of the Bible. He is the hero of the Bible. Amazing Graceland in every one of their classrooms, and I so appreciate and applaud this, in every one of their classrooms over the wall is God is the hero of every story. He's the hero of every story in this Bible. This Bible is about His works in our lives. He's the hero of your life today. There's that within us that longs for a hero. We talked about that in a recent staff meeting. There is that within each one of us. Gentlemen, when we were boys, we had athletic heroes. We had athletes that we looked up to. Now, as grown men and pursuing a world of commerce, there are successful businessmen that we look up to and we long to emulate their patterns of leadership. There is that within us that longs for heroes. You know, uh, entertainment world's tapped into this. They develop a program on NBC called Of All Things Heroes. People have super, superhuman abilities. Superman comic books, Spider-Man, Batman, the Fantastic Four. Now they, they come to the theater and, and we go watch them and see them because there's something within us that answers to that. Because we live in a world that we cannot fix and many of us are in lives we cannot fix and we long for redemption. And God has given us a redeemer. Steadfast love would enflesh itself and live among us. And suffer in our place and walk into the valley, the shadow of death and come out on the other end so that not one of us would be left behind. And the king of terrors, God incarnate in Jesus Christ, is the hero of this story and he's the hero of the Bible. Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, wonderful movie, I think, but I love gratuitous violence in movies. Nothing like a good throat punch to get me going. Um, wonderful, wonderful movie. Did you see it? The beginning when they took his beloved daughter, Kim, and he utters calmly and coldly through the receiver to an unknown assailant. I have skills, a special set of skills, and I will look for you, and I will find you. And I will kill you. And the rest of the story is Liam Neeson looking for a loved daughter. And at the end he finds her. And he rescues her. And she says to him, Daddy, I knew that you would come. Daddy, I knew that you would come. That's what this psalm says to us today. Regardless of where you are this morning. You're loved by a God whose love is better than unconditional because he will not let you go in your lostness. He will not let you linger long in your rebellion. He will give you space to be foolish for a season. And he's with you in the storms of life. And he will not let you go. And this text says so. Father, there is that within us that longs to be loved this way. To know that we're safe. To know that we're secure. To know that we're protected. And you've given us that kind of love. And you've made it flesh for us in Jesus Christ. Oh God, grant that this would be a potent reminder today. Applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts.
that we would be moved to worship. That our emotions would be unthawed. That we would be unfrozen before God who loves us with such an extravagant kind of love. And then, Father, may it encourage those of us who love people, who are lost, who are rebelling, who are foolish, and who are broken, to never give up. And may it enable and compel us to share this kind of love with others. And, Father, toward that end, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.